Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. Well, I don't know if you've seen the billboards, seen the advertisements on TV. I received something in the mail. Mr. Tony Robbins is coming to town. One day to change your life. I'm not really sure what that means, but I've seen his posters. Basically, I've seen his big smiley teeth everywhere. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not against him. I'm not for him. I just think it's interesting that a guy like this can do so much for people in just one day. If you have a credit card handy, um, a couple things here. It always has to do with the raising of hands here. It's like life and wealth mastery. You can transform your mind and body. I mean, who doesn't want that? I think we all need that. All right. Or this other conference that he does unleash the power within the hands aren't up. The hands are like this. You can create your breakthrough. By the way, I, I noticed that in all these posters and advertisements on the web and in print, everything has an exclamation after it. He's like a teen on Twitter, you know, or, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like, everything's awesome. Okay. All right. But this one's one of my favorites right here. This is date with destiny. Discover your true destiny within. I happen to have had a date with destiny long time ago and I married Mary Beth and that was awesome. But I don't don't know what you're looking for with Tony Robbins, but he is a motivational speaker. I went to his website and these are the things that it says about his ministry. Take a look at this. You can not get ready, but get ready. All right. So you can have a breakthrough because your breakthrough awaits. Maybe somebody who's followed him after the service can explain to me what the whole drenched in water thing is. I don't really know what that is. Did he just come out of a pool or does he sweat like a horse? I don't really know. You can have massive success, massive action. You can improve your health. You can find financial freedom. As Americans, we love motivational speakers. We love self-help. We love to get energized. We love to get motivated to think we can make change. And then we all go home. All right. We put the book on the shelf or we put the DVD set away. We never actually follow through with most of everything. But we're really prone to buy into all these motivational speakers, all their motivational tricks and habits. And there are some really good things. I am sure there are some really good things that they say. But chances are most of what they say is pretty much common sense if you know, we would apply it in our lives. If you look back and even in our history, hundred years ago, 200 years ago, motivational speakers have been around all throughout American history. They were some of the early pioneers. They were some of the early preachers that went across the plains and they spoke. And it was pretty interesting. I did some research in history this week just to see this, but the one that we really kind of count as the beginner, the forerunner of our motivational speakers is a guy named Dale Carnegie. Now Dale is known because of his books, but the book's 
came from speeches, from classes, from seminars that he taught. And somebody came in one time and grabbed one of the classes and then ended up transcribing that into a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. One of the number one bestsellers of all times in our print. Another one that was really sold well, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. So if you think about Dale Carnegie, have you ever read his book? Uh, or in his book, motivational speaker, you know, really encouraging people. There's a lot of great habits, a lot of great tips, a lot of things you could learn there. And so I just kind of went, I thought, summarize some of them. And uh, these are not in any particular order. In fact, the last one is his number one rule. But here are a couple rules in how to win friends and influence people. Uh, here's one, give honest and sincere appreciation. That's a good thing. Everybody wants to be thanked for the things that they do. Everybody wants to be appreciated and they, we want it to be sincere, not fake. We want people to know that it really does show up in our lives, the things that we do and, and the way we appreciate people. Another one he said is this, become genuinely interested in other people. And that's really important. And he mentions it this way. He said, you can learn more, more in, in just two hours with people hearing their story than you could ever learn if you spent two months telling your story. Just stop and ask that question. I've loved that one. Just what's your story? Just listening to people. In fact, that's one of his hints is just be a good listener. Don't always think about what you're going to say next. Don't derail the conversation with something else. Just be a good listener. But his number one rule for how to win friends and influence people is this. Never criticize, condemn, or complain. In fact, this is how he puts it. He says, human nature does not like to admit fault doesn't we know that when people are criticized or humiliated they rarely respond well and will often become defensive and resent their critic to handle people well we must never criticize never condemn and never complain because it will never result in the behavior that we desire from people now there's a lot of truth in that uh, but I, I've never read the whole book. Uh, I have it on my shelf. I thumbed through it once or twice. Um, but it's, you know, it's a good, it's a good truth. I know somebody else has never read it, never absorbed the truth of it. Jesus, um, because he destroys this principle of Dale Carnegie's. In fact, today we're going to see Jesus get kicked out of the Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people class. I mean, he flunks miserably. I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus today begins a journey of going for the jugular vein of the religious people. Today, Jesus begins the end of the last few days of his life. And he does so because he criticizes, he condemns, and he complains about the religious leader's hypocrisy. Now, to get you up to speed, what we've been seeing in the book of Matthew is that Jesus has come on the scene. He's Messiah. He's the long-awaited king, the anointed one of God. The Jewish people have been waiting with bated breath to get this guy here so they could overthrow Rome. And Jesus shows up. He teaches. He heals. He ministers. He loves in marvelous ways. 
The religious leaders are a little concerned because the crowds are going to Jesus and leaving them. So they kind of check in every once in a while and they criticize Jesus and they complain a little bit. They condemn him. And then, uh, you know, early on they decide, you know, he's not from God. He can't be from God. And one time they actually come out and say, you can't be from God. And the way you're driving out demons is because you're from the devil. And then Jesus does more ministry and more teaching and more healing and things like that. And then the fervor against Jesus builds as the fervor for Jesus builds. And the religious leaders are threatened. And so as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for the last time, after three, three plus years of ministry, we began to see this over the last few weeks. The crowds are ecstatic. Jesus comes into the city. The crowds throw down their coats. He, you know, on this donkey, he, he walks into the town there on this donkey and, and the crowds wave the palm branches and they shout the words, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is save us now. They call in the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are just excited. But the religious leaders are angry and they're upset because how dare Jesus, you allow people to call you the son of David. Are you making yourself out to be God's son? And so Jesus comes in. We saw it a few weeks ago. He cleans the temple. He cleans the temple because religiously they had excommunicated all the lost people, the Gentiles out. They did not want any Gentiles into the worship of God. And so Jesus comes in, throws out the money changers, the people buying and selling there out where it should have been outside the temple there. And then he sits down, he begins teaching the people. And as the crowds gather, there are thousands of people in the temple, tens of thousands of people in the city because it's Passover, the big religious feast, reminding them of what happened thousands of years prior when God invaded the land of Egypt with these plagues, rescued them out with Moses and Aaron and delivered them finally into the promised land. And so it's this reminder. Well, in the middle of all that, last week, Pastor Taylor did an awesome job talking about their first challenge to Jesus. So Jesus is a religious teacher. He's seated there. He's teaching them. Everybody's watching thousands of people and the religious leaders come up. And I don't know if they work their way in or they work their way around, but they come in and they immediately clash with Jesus. And they said, where do you get the authority to say these things? Where do you get the authority to do these things? You know, we have our authority. Where do you get it? And then Jesus, as Taylor, you know, proclaimed last week, it was great. It was like, well, I'm not going to answer your question, except I'm going to ask you a question. It's where did John get his authority? They don't want to answer that. He kind of stumps them, throws them off. And the truth is, you know, Jesus just derails them for a bit. But then today we're going to see the next part of what he says. He gives them a couple stories to criticize, condemn, to attack them, to shut them down, to reveal them as they are false teachers. And it it goes well today, but as the weeks go by, it's not going to go so well. And it's going to end with Jesus' very life on a cross. Now, lest you get into the mood that I get into, the mindset that I often get into when I read the Bible, um, I just want to caution you. If you're like me, I'll look at those stories And I'll kind of be a third party watching everything. But I'm not in the story because I'm not a religious teacher or leader like those people were. I'm not like that, right? None of us think of ourselves like that. And so we kind of listen to that and we get excited about Jesus' words toward them. Maybe we put ourselves in the crowd. If you're really feeling good about yourself, you put yourself in Jesus, you know, in the place of Jesus. But rarely do we think of ourselves as the one who needs to hear the story that Jesus is saying. But I'd like, I'd like just to kind of think about this today from the perspective that what Jesus says 
although very harsh and very critical, very condemning, um, is really pertinent to you and me today. There are some things that Jesus says that still apply to us, even though we're not the people he said it to, even though it's 2000 years ago, even though the religious system is completely radically different. The heart of Jesus in sharing this message, these two stories, is something that you and I desperately need today as church people. Well, let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, it's three pieces of text walking all the way through. Because of the length, we're going to read through each story and then make a few comments. But the first thing we see here in Matthew 21 is this. Jesus, on the heels of what we said last week, where do you get your authority? He asks them a question. But what do you think about this? He tells him a story, a parable. A man with two sons told their older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. So it's a normal story. Uh, A guy's got two sons and the older one he gives instructions to. And what's fascinating is that the older boy in Greek is Josiah. Okay, all right. That, and then, then the, the, young, the next one is Noah. Okay, so Seth, I'm sorry Jesus did not include you in the stories, um, but I love you anyway. And so, so, so the first son is like, hey, go out and work. The son says, I'm not going to go. Now that's called rebellion. That's not received well by the Jewish people. Anybody who would hear this story immediately would just go, a son would say that to his father? <laughs> they didn't live in it. Wonderfully progressive age like we live today. Uh, they lived in a, in a respect uh, time. And so well, why would a son ever say that? But, oh, thankfully, he went out and had to change of heart and did it anyway. But the other son said, oh, of course I'll go do it. But didn't intend on doing it. Didn't go out and do any work for the father. This is Jesus' question. Which of the two obeyed his father? Well, the religious leaders, that's an obvious answer. This is what they say. Well, the first Of course, because it's not in your lips, but in your actions. It's not in what you say, because we can say anything. It's what we do that shows the reality of our heart. So Jesus says this, I'll tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. And unless you think, what in the world is Jesus connecting the two stories with? Well, that's the point. These are the religious people who with their lips said, of course, God, I'll serve you. But when God shows up in John the Baptist and he preaches a message of repentance, they say no to God. And yet the people that said, no, I'm not going to follow you, corrupt tax collectors, prostitutes, the worst, the worst people in the culture, in the society, they'd already said no. They were wearing no all over them. That's their life. They hear the message of God and they are broken internally. They're repenting and they come to John and they receive this message of the good news. And they were the ones, they were the sons in the story that ultimately obeyed. And so Jesus is looking at these religious leaders in the midst of a great public gathering and says, you are the sons that are quick to honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. And by the way, that is not a message that goes down well. It's hard to swallow. But I think that's a message that you and I need to hear. I mean, a couple thoughts. 
you know, again, lest we think this doesn't apply to us. Number one, I, I love this. The doors of repentance are always open. God is always speaking love to us. In this context, he brought John, the immerser, the baptizer in there uh, to speak with this fiery message about repenting and turning to God. It was pretty exciting. Everybody was doing that. Of course, the religious leaders went down to see it and he called them vipers and serpents and all kinds of things, corrupt people. The fact is, is that you and I, even today, still need to be reminded that apart from repenting of our sins and turning to God, we have no hope. Oh, we'll have a hope of self-righteousness, but that's not going to get us very far in life. You and I need a moment in our life to repent of our sins and turn to God. Just like the tax collectors did, just like the prostitutes, just like the sinful people. They, of course, had said no with their life. Some of us lived like that. We had a lot of sunrise people that started out life saying no to God, but then eventually ended up saying yes to him. And those are amazing stories. We have a lot of stories and mine is, is probably more like an average person here. We said yes to God, but the question is where our hearts really in it. I know mine wasn't. I wasn't even a follower of God. Although I was saying yes with my lips, I didn't really know him until I had a moment of repentance in high school when I decided to turn from my sins and turn to God. We all need that. Second thing we can learn is this, is that it's not about what we say. It's about what we do. It's not about what we can convince others about our lives. It's about how we actually demonstrate it with the reality, the fruit of our lives. Any of us could be a religious person. Any of us could say, well, I go to church. I sing the songs. I, I, you know, I listen to the messages. I serve in the church. I do all those things. Obviously, I'm in. But yet our hearts are far from God. Any of us could do that. In fact, I think all of us do that at some moments in our lives. We all fake it, right? We all pretend. And I think the message for us in that moment is, let's check to make sure that our lips match our life, right? Not just the words, but the way we walk our lives line up. Or we're just going to become hypocrites, like Jesus says the religious people were. They were really good at their mouth. They were really good at promoting themselves as lovers of God. But they loved themselves and their money more than God. Well, so let's go to the next story, which gets actually the heat turns up and the tempers start to flare because this is a really good story. Now listen to another story. Jesus says a certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. That's a good business, right? I mean, this is an entrepreneur. This is something that would happen in the culture. It's like a, a franchise owner. You know, I'm going to build my franchise. I'm going to staff it with people. It's fully operational. It's going to work. Well, you don't do that for nothing, right? You do it as a business investment. And in this case, they build a wall to protect uh, the, vin the vines from any animals or any thief that might come through. Build a tower, like a watchtower to guard over it. Uh, they, you know, they build and cultivate the grapes, the vineyard there, and they build a wine press. Because the goal is to get wine out of this, right? Well, when the time comes for the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. Because it's all his anyway, right? He just has tenant workers doing the actual farm work. But the tenant workers don't want to yield to this owner. Look what happens. The farmers, the tenant, not, not the owner, but the renters come in, grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him. But the results were the same. Now, I don't know what's going on in the minds and the hearts of these tenant farmers I mean I mean maybe it makes sense at one point oh the bill's coming due let's 
avoid the bill collector, you know, let's run. Let's just, you know, say I'm not home, hang up the phone, whatever, not answer the mail. But after a while, this doesn't seem to make sense anymore. As person after person after person shows up demanding payment. What what would it be like to live our lives in such a way that we think I'll never be responsible for my life? How could we even get there? To where it's like, this makes sense for us to live our lives in such a way like this. Well, this is what they were doing until finally they thought perfect golden opportunity. Finally, the owner sent his son thinking, surely they will respect my son and they know exactly what they're going to do. When the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the chance. This is the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him. Get the estate for ourselves. That doesn't even make any sense. But it did to them. That's kind of how our sinful foolishness works sometimes. From the outside, we're thinking, that doesn't make any sense. But when we're in the middle of it, it makes perfect sense, right? That's kind of the foolishness, the blindness that comes around us when we're pursuing our sinful life. You know, it makes sense to us. Other people are going, I'm going to back away from you because lightning is going to fall, right? That's exactly what happens in this context. Let's get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. Now, if this is sounding vaguely familiar, a couple thoughts. One, in one of the encounters, Jesus says, which of my prophets from the Old Testament did your people not destroy? God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to come and say, repent of your sins and turn back to God. Repent of your sins and turn back to God. And the religious leaders of the Old Testament had killed them all because they didn't want to hear that message. The godly people didn't want to hear from God. Because they had built a system that was, for them at least, in their mind, safe and secure, and they didn't need God. So finally, Jesus shows up, and that's exactly what they're going to do to Jesus. See, Jesus is foretelling his own death here. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asks, what do you think he'll do to these farmers? Well, it's obvious. The religious leaders replied, he'll put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him a share of the crop after each harvest because that's only right again unless we think nice story Jesus go get them (laughs) Um, we all have our lives friends you have your life you have your pursuits you have your business most of us went to college we got a degree we headed into a course of life we started a business we worked in a business maybe we became an owner we, we're pretty good at this, right? We're, we're entrepreneurs. We, we've got American ingenuity and we do these things. And we pursue these things with a passion because that comes back to us. We know that. But the Bible says that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything we have. I mean, the, every breath, it's from God. I talked to a friend last night. He's 78 years old. So he's not old yet, he said. Not quite there. Not too long ago, his heart stopped. As in stopped. He says, I died. And they brought me back. And now I have a pacemaker. I don't take my heartbeats for granted anymore. It's like, wow. When was the last time I stopped and thought about my heartbeats, right? Every heartbeat is a gift from God. Don't take it for granted. It's not guaranteed, my friends. Every breath... It's a gift from God. 
But you say, but I worked for this. I earned this. I studied. I did all this. Yeah, I know. But who gave you the brain and the will to do all that in the first place, right? Yeah, God has invested in you so that he would see a return on that investment. God is like the farmer, the owner, I mean, that says, you go and farm this land. I've got it all set up. You go do something with it. Do you know the Bible says that God is going to hold us to account for how we lived our lives, whether we lived it for us or for him and others. Paul, the apostle Paul wrote about this in Corinthians. He says, at the end of our lives, we stand before Jesus, not in a judgment of condemnation, but in a judgment of what we did. It's a righteous judgment called a Bema seat, which echoes and reminds us of the Greeks in some kind of a, a race. There would be gold, silver, bronze, things like that. There would be some levels of rewards that you and I are each going to stand before him. We are each going to stand before Jesus and the fires of a good judgment are going to sweep through what we've brought with us, which sounds kind of weird, but that's how it works. All that we've accumulated in life and things that are worthless, wood, hay and stubble. That's the the metaphor for the things that we probably thought were important, but just going to burn up instantly. They'll be gone. But other things like uh, gold and silver and precious stones, things that symbolize what was done for God, what was done in his honor, what was done to the people that he loved, those are going to last. And those are going to be our reward we take into heaven. And that's the truth. Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. And so... You and I have been given a life. God's built a farm, as it were, and he's planted stuff in our lives. He shaped us. He's equipped us. And he said, now go do this. Could you imagine the audacity if we were to stand there and say, I'm not giving you any of the crop. All that you invested in me, God, it's for me and me alone. What would that be like to stand before Jesus one day? All my time I used for me. All my talent an ability I use for me. All my treasures, it was all about me. This is a really good story for you and me. I mean, these religious leaders are going to get in trouble because of it, because they're going to get angry and go kill Jesus, and then they pay for that. But the fact is, you and me, we do the same thing. I know we do it. Whether the totality of our life is lived for us, or seasonally we kind of go through stages and phases where it's all about me. I think this is a really good story for us. Jesus goes on, though, and and this is kind of a strange, maybe a segue into the next part, but it's it's really, really cool. Look what he says. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? Which I think is always funny. It's kind of like, you know, going to a kid who's five. Don't you know how to count? Of course you know how to count. They won't shut up about counting, right? They're so excited. It's like, these are the religious leaders. They've memorized the books. When Jesus goes, haven't you ever read in the scriptures? It's like, what? What what are you, you humiliating us? I know the scriptures, right? I, I created scriptures that back up scriptures. These guys have other scriptures that they've written that they call scriptures just to validate their scriptures, right? They know everything. Haven't you ever read in scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's wonderful to see. You and I are thinking like, I have no idea where he's going with this, right? It's like, it's like parenthetical Jesus. He's like jumping into something else. It's like, I don't know. They're going to get it. And I think we're going to get it in a moment. Look what he says. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who falls on. And here's what he's saying in the bottom part of that. 
Uh, and this is, this is a, a text of scripture. It's backed up by many other texts of scripture. That God had given salvation to the Jews. But not just for the Jews. For the whole world. But you see in the Old Testament. That they kept it for themselves. And God brought judgment on the Jewish people. Destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Destroyed the temple. Later it was rebuilt. By the time Jesus shows up. It's magnificent. It's a monument to God's greatness. But then they reject Jesus as Messiah. Now the Romans come in and destroy it. Not one stone is left unturned. It's just laid waste. And, and, and this is, this is, you know, this is a harsh truth. And it's this. God gave salvation to the Jews. And the Jews kept it for themselves. And God says, I'm going to take that away from you now. I'm going to give it to another nation. Now, that's the Gentiles. Paul, later on in Romans 9, 10, and 11 says, He's, he's a Jew, he's a rabbi, so he knows his own people. He says, God has blinded their eyes and their hearts to see this message. And so now it's left to us as Gentiles to go share the message with people around the world. But my, he says, Paul says in a beautiful way, I'd, give, I'd even go to hell, he says, if it meant the Jews would be saved. That's his passion for his own people. And the Bible says one day they will be saved. One day they will see the light of the Messiah, Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it describes when they will turn back to him. But for now, in many ways, their eyes are blinded. Some, some believe, man, if you ever run into a Messianic Jew, they are believers and they see it and they know Jesus. But now God has handed over this message of reconciliation to us, the Gentiles. So question, how are we doing with it? <laughs> I think God has a lot to judge us for, to be completely honest, because we've kept it for ourselves in the same way. We've used it for ourselves. We've kept it for our little wonderful comfort in many ways, just like the Jewish people did. And I think there's judgment coming because of that. The church, we have not done well over the last 2000 years of spreading the message of God's goodness and grace to other people. We've either abused that privilege. We've We've pushed it with military might or we've just kept it for ourselves. This is something that applies to you even today. You've been entrusted with the message of salvation by Jesus. What are you doing with it? Have you shared it? Have you actually communicated it to anybody in the last couple months? Have you opened up your heart and life and you're like, yeah, but I'm not a pastor. I'm an evangelist. You have been given the message and you are now a messenger or a messengerette. Okay. All right. You have been given this wonderful truth of salvation through Jesus. What have you done with it? It's not just for you. It's for the people who don't have it yet. Well, these religious leaders, they kind of fall back into the shadows and look what happens here. Leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable. The priests of the Sadducees. So when the Sadducees and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Well, I want to I close just by thinking back at that one picture Jesus painted for us, a cornerstone. A little strange story in the midst of everything. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. So in the old days, not too distant old days for us even, when you would build a building, you'd build a house, you'd build a a monument, uh, you would put the very first stone down and throw a party. 
Today we take pictures, we get golden shovels and we like, you know, put it in the ground and we take the first, you know, shovel full and we go, that's kind of the groundbreaking. All right. But back then they would lay the first stone down. You can go to a lot of old buildings Uh, today in our area, back east. You can see these 100, 200 years old. They have inscribed on the side of them the date, a little story or about the people that actually put this down. And the cornerstone represented the beginning of everything. And it was important to get as as pure a stone, best shape as possible, straight and true. And then you would lay that stone down because then the builders would build off of that stone. And if you put that stone down, straight and true the building would be straight and true and that's the metaphor that jesus uses here it's an old testament metaphor actually that the cornerstone has been laid it's god himself it's jesus and that we could build a foundation on him as our chief cornerstone inscribed with his name on it and everything we build upon will last but the religious people of jesus day Religious people of our day will take that cornerstone and we'll discard it and we'll build our life on whatever we want to build our lives on. And later, you know, we see how this works. All the stones, the temple are thrown up and down, blown to pieces when the Romans come in. Paul says that we build our foundation on Jesus. Jesus himself said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we're all building a house, nice house, What's the foundation? Because if it's a nice house and it's a weak foundation, I don't care how nice a house it is, it's going to crumble and fall when the storms and the rain, the wind comes. So my question to close with today is, you're building your life. We're all building our life. We're all building it on foundation stones. Is Jesus your cornerstone? Do you point back to him? Does he point in the direction and all of your life, does it line up to that? Have you let Jesus be established as the cornerstone of your life? Because then whatever is built mirrors and reflects back to that cornerstone. Or have you just had the audacity to say, I'm going to build whatever I want to build out or whatever I want to build it on. And it might look like a nice place, but it's going to fall down. Even now you can come back and let him be your chief cornerstone. I wrote down a couple thoughts here. What is the role of Jesus in your life? Really now, not just with your lips, because we can be the son that says, oh, yeah, I'll obey you. And then we have no intention to obey him. And again, at sunrise, many of us have said no. And then we came back to God, which is kind of the story of our church. I love that. Is Jesus an afterthought to your life or is he the cornerstone? Have you placed Jesus in the honored position of directing every other aspect of your life? Have you humbled yourself and responded to Jesus with saving faith and received him as Lord and Savior? Or have you ignored him and rejected him, refused him as the authority in your life? And if so, that's, that's like the tenants. They're, they're getting all the freebies. They're getting all the crop. But they didn't do any of the real work. And then the master's going to come back. Have you said, God, you're not in charge of my life. I will live my life as I want. You will be held accountable for that. So what we need today is we need to be like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. We need to repent and come to God. Let's let's pray together. Father God, I pray that as we think about these words, the stories of Jesus about the two sons, we'd ask, which son are we? We quick to say the words, but not live them. 
or we've kind of blown up our lives and pushed God away, but now we're responding and saying yes to him. It's not in our lips, but in our life that matters. Or in the parable of the tenant, the owner, are, are we responsive to what he's done for us, invested in us? Or are we taking all the goods for ourselves? Are we living our lives really as if we are never going to be accountable to it? Most importantly, though, when we think about this idea of cornerstone, have we put you in that first place and everything else in our life lines up? God, may we be the kind of people that could proudly proclaim and display Jesus as our chief cornerstone. And if we find ourselves in a moment when we we can't answer, you know, in a positive way to these, I mean, we can repent and we can turn from our sin and turn to you because you're always willing to receive broken and repentant people. God, may we turn to you with our lips and with our life today and acknowledge you as Jesus, our Savior and Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.